0: COVID case counts continue to climb throughout the tri-state area, and positivity rates are also moving in the wrong direction. Meanwhile, a new variant, Omicron, has arrived, leaving some concern that it can spread faster than the Delta variant. This while more Americans travel to see loved ones this holiday season. Fortunately, early reports show that the vaccine is effective against a new variant. Still, many people haven't received their booster shots. Today, we speak to Northwell's Chief of Public Health and Epidemiology, Dr. Bruce Farber, and Northwell's Chief of Integrated Operations, Dr. John D'Angelo. They'll talk to us about how people can best protect themselves and how Northwell is positioned to handle any increase in cases within the health system. I'm David Reich-Hale, and this is 20-Minute Health Talk. The breakdown between Delta and Omicron variants has kind of... has changed quite a bit over the last few days. And the CDC reported that 73% of new cases last week were Omicron. What does that mean, Dr. Farber?
1: It's quite an unbelievable statistic, to put it mildly. If if you didn't see it with your own eyes, you'd have a hard time believing how quickly the shift occurred. Uh, We've literally gone from a predominance of Delta to a predominance of Omicron in a week. And it's shocking how quickly this variant has become dominant. And we all thought it would become dominant. We knew it would become dominant. But quite frankly, most people thought that it would take at least four or five weeks. This is not that dissimilar, in fairness, to what happened in Africa and what happened in the UK and what's happened in Norway and in other northern European countries where they've seen this incredible explosion. And I think it just goes to reinforce how contagious this variant is compared to its ancestral cousins.
0: So we've seen an ebb and flow of COVID cases on Long Island for the better part of two years. And while the worst of it seems like a long time ago, we are seeing cases rise again. How concerned should we be? Unfortunately, we have to be very
1: concerned, and I know that everybody wants COVID to be over, and many people feel that, you know, COVID is over, but the reality is COVID is not over, and we've learned to live our lives and get on with our lives, but it would be foolish for us to not pay attention to what's been going on on Long Island, particularly over the last six weeks.
0: So, Dr. D'Angelo, when I look at the hospitalization numbers, it doesn't seem like we're anywhere near overwhelmed, correct?
2: Yeah, no, the hospitals are not overwhelmed with COVID per se, but there's a difference between um, what we experienced last year in the second wave last winter. Uh, So even though we have about half the COVID numbers as we had a year ago, our total census is very high. Uh, And that's because um, what we didn't experience during the second wave uh, and we're experiencing now is the return of all the other viruses and the subsequent related pneumonias and sepsis and the other things that... We had a very uh, fortunate winter last year. We didn't see a lot of that because of much stricter uh, social distancing. Things were still shut down to some extent and so forth. So uh, the hospitals are very busy, but fortunately at this moment, the COVID volume is not what we experienced at this point last year.
0: Now the, the death rate is also far lower. And there are a few reasons for that. Uh, Dr. Farber, if you can get into just a couple of those, that'd be great.
1: Sure. Well, there's lots of reasons, uh, and it's a complicated issue. But clearly, we're a lot better at taking care of patients, and have a lot more uh, armamentarium to deal with COVID. Um, you know, and we're using a lot more monoclonal antibodies. We are basically treating a lot more people who have been fully vaccinated, and these people clearly are going to have a significant less uh, morbidity and mortality than in the original waves. So that's a dramatic. Dramatic difference compared to before.
0: Between the two variants, is there a point where sort of one takes over the other, and that's it?
1: Well, several answers to that question. First, no, there is no usual. There are countries where there have been uh, variants that have circulated simultaneously uh, in for fairly prolonged periods of time. One does not really, you know, take over the other, if you if you will, eat it for lunch. But what's different about this variant is it has one, the ability to latch on in much lower numbers to the pharyngeal epithelial cells that it first binds to cause infection. Now, if those numbers are small enough, this is reminiscent of prior experiences we've had with measles. You know, if you have measles and you go to the bathroom and breathe and somebody goes to the bathroom a couple of minutes later and walks in, they can get measles just from the virions that you left in that room or bathroom hours ago. And that's reminiscent of what's happening with this variant. It's extraordinarily contagious and therefore uh, it doesn't require a lot of contact or exposure. This is different than the strictly droplet nuclei type of exposure which people previously talked about within a three foot radius for six feet. That's clearly not necessary to have a transmission of this virus.
0: What else do we know about the the new variant and what else should we be looking for over the next few weeks?
1: What do we know so far? We need to know a lot more, but on a preliminary scale, we know that one, it's definitely more contagious. Two, we know that it's it's associated with more reinfections in people who have previously had infections with another variant of COVID. Thirdly, we know that the current vaccines are not nearly as good against this variant as they are against Delta and the ancestral strains. What do I mean by that? I mean, in preliminary studies, it looks like two doses of Pfizer vaccines have about a 40% efficacy at best against preventing infection by this variant. And if you look at three doses, or really, I should say a booster, then the rate of protection goes back up to the 70s. And it's probably close to 85% effective from preventing you from being in the hospital and from dying, which is the the big push. So we are in for a ride against this new variant. The good news is it does not appear to be more virulent, and there is some anecdotal suggestion that it is much less virulent and causes much less severe disease. I'm seeing an enormous number of cases, and most of them are mild. I think everyone is. Everyone knows somebody whose relative or whose friend has had COVID recently you can't walk down the halls without getting stopped about somebody who's telling you about you know somebody who got covid i just don't know whether that denominator is so big that it's still going to lead to a big surge in hospitalizations and in many ways i support what the uh, cdc is saying now which is you know the positivity rate is important but it really becomes much less important than just following the rates of hospitalization cuz they're much really more important in determining the effect this virus is having on the strains of the healthcare system and the like.
0: Can we explain the science of why boosters work so well? Quite simply, there's two major
1: components to it. The first is the production of antibodies, which are proteins that neutralize and make it more difficult for that virus to spread from cell to cell. And the second is a bunch of other cells called T cells, although there are many different types of T cells, and each one of them has a different function in helping the production of antibody and in fighting off the virus. And we know that the neutralizing antibodies that those B cells make um, are very important in protecting us. And we know that by giving another boost, and the term boost comes from literally that, by priming the B cells again, we can get those antibodies back up to protecting us.
0: So then whether or not you're talking about one variant or the other, a key piece of this, it sounds like, is to make sure that you get your booster shot as soon as you're eligible to get one.
2: Absolutely. When you hear that less severe disease, but but more likely to spread, right, this virus will spread, this variant will spread a little bit easier, uh, is what we anticipate. The boosters, uh, the vaccines will be a little less effective, boosters making them more effective. The other thing we got to think about as a system operationally then is, yeah, it may lead to less hospitalizations, but... Depending on the number of people that actually wind up with this infection, what's the impact to our staffing, uh, quarantine, cell, you know, exposures? Um, so, so you know, what's the demand going to be out there for testing um, when people are starting to feel sick? Do they have the flu or do they have COVID? So, um, we're doing a lot of preparation right now, even though we anticipate the COVID hospitalizations may not be what we had experienced in prior waves. I think the demand for those types of services and the impact on, on people missing work and so forth is gonna be real. Um, we need to prepare for that.
0: So if the, if the vaccine is a key piece of this, but the vaccine is, as you had mentioned, Dr. Farber, somewhere in the 70% range effective on the new variant uh, with the booster, then that's a number that probably causes some concern for everybody, right? Because then you still have three in 10 people who are not protected from this variant. So how do we, How do? what's the message there? How do we get people to sort of understand that even so, it's important to get the vaccine?
1: Well, I think the message is, um, you know, of that 70% or give or take whatever the number is, um, that's still, those are people who are getting infected, but that doesn't mean they're going to die and wind up in a hospital. So, you know, the pivot has to be that even when these vaccines are not great uh, or as good as they were when they first came out, they are overwhelmingly preventing uh, hospitalizations, death, and serious morbidity and mortality.
2: Yeah, and I think to Bruce's point, the vaccines are the key and we got to get more people out. Um, There's not enough people that have gotten boosters that are qualified. And the other population, I think that... um, uh, is very concerning to me is the pediatric population. Initially, vaccines approved 12 to 17-year-olds, now 5 to 11s are also included. And when you look at the percentages of kids that are actually vaccinated, it's very low. And um, uh, I don't know, but just anecdotally, um, both of my own experiences and talking to others, you're starting to see, see and hear more about the spread of, of, of infections through these schools and so forth. So... Um, I think uh, that's one thing that has me concerned going into this winter is the pediatric vaccination rates.
0: How else do we protect ourselves? I mean, obviously, if the vaccine is number one, what else do we have to do?
1: Well, I mean, I, I think, think we all know that a lot of the mitigation things that worked so well uh, last year are, have not been used with any degree of the same prevalence. So, for example, you know, flu and RSV and rhinoviruses and adenoviruses paraflu are all back. And they were essentially gone when we were all masked. Um, and they are respiratory viruses. So, you know, I support what the governor just did of saying that, look, if you're going to allow people inside who are not fully vaccinated, you really need to make them mask. And, you know, I'm not saying that people need to wear masks in every setting, but when you're in a public setting and we're undergoing a Delta spike as well as an oncoming new variant, I think it is reasonable to ask people to mask inside in public places. That is another thing that we can do. And it actually helps. Look, it's not the cure, but it does decrease rates by as much as
0: 50%
1: in some studies.
0: Dr. Farber, you're referencing Governor Hochul's mask mandate, which was implemented on Monday, December 13th. And Dr. D'Angelo, there's quite a difference between the way New York City has handled this and the way all the suburbs, not just Long Island, but Westchester and Fairfield County in Connecticut and northern New Jersey, where in New York City, you have to bring your vaccine card to get inside of a restaurant. And now in the suburbs of New York, at least, you just have to have a mask. But once you sit down and eat or go to the bar or do anything else, you're, you're probably not going to be wearing your mask. So is there a difference in effectiveness between the two plans?
2: I think if you look at the positivity rates throughout the pandemic New York City is uh, Manhattan specifically but New York City's had uh, much lower positivity rates than other areas not only in our region but in the country so I I think um you know the strategy from my perspective works it's whether or not the public will tolerate that but that's that's uh, it's. I I see it as very effective
0: there are still probably lessons learned from early 2020 that you're utilizing now can can we get into that a little bit
2: we um uh you know the surge plans all the planning we had going into that first wave got us through probably the first week and then it was back to the drawing board because no one anticipated the volume of of cases and and total patients we'd be managing and to your point, we had about thirty four fifty thirty five hundred covid patients and you know, over five thousand total patients in our in our hospitals um And uh, that really pushed us. So from that and planning for the second wave and now this wave, we've gotten very good at understanding every square inch of space that we could manage a patient if we need to and have an escalation plan in every hospital, of how to best manage the, 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 you know, this uh, a surge. Um, We understand the importance of. Space, staffing, supplies, and how they all have to triangulate. And and, and you have to plan, you know, kind of always like a, almost like a week ahead of time, understanding the current events and making the best move at that time, which could vary depending on where that surge is. Um, and uh, there was some regulatory relief in the first two waves, uh, which we don't have 100% of that back yet. That allowed us to be really creative with moving patients around and smoothing our volume to maintain critical programs and not have to shut things down like we did in that first wave.
0: What have we learned from the predictive technologies that Northwell has created to get out ahead of possible COVID increases?
2: Yeah, no, we continue to use um, and evolve the, 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 the tools uh, that we've developed to not only uh, do surveillance based on Things we talked about on this you know positivity rates and trends and and hospital volumes and and ed and go health and demand for testing we we look at all of this including working with our marketing people on web search terms that you know how many people are looking up COVID type symptoms or tylenol or you know looking for you know that sort of stuff modeling on anticipated hospital volumes uh some of the stuff that's been done there has been really cool and uh seems to have been uh fairly accurate during the second wave so we're looking at that closely to kind of understand where we think the the trends will turn on the hospitalization side based not only on hospitalization rates but community prevalence. Um so yeah, we're still using all these same tools and always playing with them to see if we can get them any better.
0: Now the first time around there was a pause on elective surgeries too and that has not happened Correct. yet and is there is there any concern about
2: that happening? I think, as a system, I don't have concern. we We made it through, again, last winter without having to cancel a single thing. Now, did we shift some things from one location to another? Uh, yes, but it was our goal, and it still is our goal to maintain, you know, full services. And you know what we call elective is is not elective to the person who needs a surgery. and and some of the things that are on that list are pretty important types of surgery. so so we really want to strive to maintain full uh, full service. So, Uh, and the way we do that, and we did it last winter, um, we got up much higher than we are today. And we, we did that through this load balancing process through moving patients around, moving staff around. And then occasionally if need be, again, we can always find it somewhere in our system. That's not as stressed that we can relocate, uh, procedures to.
0: Well, and the the other issue now is, testing, right? Because to be able to tell the difference between whether somebody has a flu, somebody has some sort of other viral infection, which in the wintertime is all over, or if it's COVID is to test somebody. We're recording this right before Christmas and week out from New Year's. So what do you recommend to people?
1: So there's no question that that's a big problem. And that's probably the biggest problem that is facing people. And help is on the way. It's not going to be perfect, but the state is opening four new testing sites. Northwell has put up a testing site at One Marcus for all of its employees. They can, they can walk in there without an appointment. There are other testing sites open opening throughout both New York City and Nassau County and Suffolk as we speak.
0: And just to wrap this up, any last thoughts on where we are today and where we could be headed over the next couple of months?
1: Yeah, I'd just say something and I'll turn it over to John, which is, you know, I don't think we should use March of 2020 as, you know, a model of, are we going back to that? I mean, barring something extraordinarily different in terms of a variant that no one can predict, but even with the current variants, that is not something that we contemplate or see happening. And I don't see us ever going back based on what's going on now to that situation. Things have changed dramatically. We didn't even have testing yet. So I don't think our, you know, we should hold that to this, the, the standard of what, you know, what is going to happen. Let's, let's get rid of that, I think, in our minds. That doesn't mean, though, that we still are satisfied with 400, 800, 1,000 people in the hospital, even if we can deal with it. We still want to stop the pain and suffering and the disruption to our lives. And it's not easy and it's not going to be quick and it's not going to be, you know, happening overnight. But getting people with these boosters is a simple and easy task. And for the life of me, I don't understand how anybody who has agreed to the first two vaccines would then want to pull out from getting a booster.
2: We need to take advantage of the tools we have in the toolbox and the vaccines, boosters, masking is critical to get us out of this or at least get to some sort of sense of normalcy. Dr. D'Angelo
0: and Dr. Farber, thanks for joining me on 20-Minute Health Talk. And to you, the listener, thanks for tuning in. I'm David Reich-Hale. Hope you have a great week. Get more expert insight from some of the leading voices in healthcare today. Subscribe to 20-Minute Health Talk on Podbean, Pandora, Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts.